0: something inspiring when you listen to the garden question podcast hello i'm your host craig mcmanus paul chapel grows trees headed to a landscape garden near you he talks about the fascinating journey your trees might take before finding a home in your garden once your tree finds its home paul lays out what it takes for you to be a successful tree grower for multiple generations Paul fell in love with plants and their care over 36 years ago. He tells some very interesting stories about his time at Callaway Gardens, the challenges of growing native trees in the nursery, and also some plant design practices and choices you will want to avoid. Paul is a Georgia-certified landscape professional, an ISA-certified arborist, and a 20-plus-year nursery grower of fine trees this is episode 89 your garden's next tree with paul chapel on the garden question podcast a remix and encore presentation of episode 15 you're invited to engage with us on instagram at the garden question podcast if you'd like to email me directly the address is question at the question dot com. that's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Paul, what is the smarter way to select a tree for your property? I'm sure you've heard a lot of people talk about right plant, right place.
1: That's very basic. People usually either want a tree for shade or they want a tree for some accent, either fall color or spring color. A lot of times people just choose a tree they like rather than thinking about the mature size of the People try to plant trees in spaces that are too small. They plant crepe myrtles in places that are in heavy shade. If you could just research a little bit more, ask your local nurseryman, make a visit to the local retail garden center. Just thinking through it and making sure you've got head clearance, you've got power lines across your property or where you have sun, where you have shade, where you have room for something to grow into that space. A tree looks really nice and cute when it's small. You got to think 20, 25, 30 years down the road or how it's going to occupy that space then.
0: You're a grower of fine trees and plants. How does that process work? The nursery business has gotten
1: really, really specialized, especially in the last 20 years. There was a time, I don't know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, the nurseries in Georgia, there weren't that many of them. Those nurseries did it all, they did everything from propagation, cuttings, rooting seedlings budding grafting they had greenhouse operations they had field operations one stop place for everything they might grow flowers they might grow woody shrubs they might grow trees they might grow vines they might grow vegetables they might grow perennials they might grow grasses years ago a nursery just kind of tried to do it all our approach has been very focused in that we are doing container only and we're doing woody plants only and we're doing only plants plants that lend themselves to the market in a larger container. So the smallest thing that we do is a 15-gallon. That's a container in which we would grow, for instance, a holly up to about five to six feet, or we would grow a shade tree, oak or maple, either one, up to an inch and a half caliper and as much as 10 to maybe 12-foot planted height. And we don't do any propagation over the years, I've collected seed on a few things, and we have done a little bit, but we just, we're just we not set up for it. It's a whole nother piece of infrastructure that you've got to build. It's a whole nother skill set that you've got to have in your labor force. There are nurseries now who do nothing but propagating liners and selling them to other growers like myself who are shifting them up to larger containers or field-grown nurseries who are planting them into the ground and then finishing them off. So I guess you would call us a finished nursery. You might have to be a plant nerd to appreciate this. I think about how far a plant travels before it finds its final resting place in the landscape. Several years ago, a long time ago really, we did a, a project for the Biltmore State in Asheville, North Carolina. We committed to contract growing the replacement trees for the front of the Biltmore State. They decided to do a historical landscape renovation. These 100-year-old tulip poplars that Frederick Law Olmsted designed and planted as young whips in 1895 had come of age, and some were falling apart, many were missing, and they just decided to wipe them out and start them over. Because of our connections, that's a Callaway connection, actually, because Parker Andes, who was the director of horticulture at Callaway when I was there, when he left Callaway in 99, I think it was, he left to go become director of horticulture at Biltmore State. So we knew each other. He actually called us to see if we knew somebody who would be willing to contract grow these trees, and we said, how about us? He said, well, I hadn't thought about doing them in a container because he was thinking field grown. Anyway, we grew these trees. Point to this story that by the time we delivered four-inch caliper, 100-gallon tulip poplars, 22 feet tall, we delivered 60 out to the Biltmore State. When you think about the history of that tree, it was collected from seed in Louisiana. And I know this because I did a little bit of research on them. A nursery in Lee, Florida, bought those seeds, grew 12, 14-inch seedlings. A nursery in Cairo, Georgia, bought those seedlings and grew them into five-gallon containers up to six to eight feet tall. A nursery in Luthersville, Georgia, bought those, grew them in 30-gallon containers up to two-inch caliper and 12 to 14 feet tall. We bought those 30-gallon trees, brought them to our farm, shifted them into 100-gallon containers, grew them up to 4-inch, 22 feet tall, and then we put them on semi-trucks and shipped them to Asheville, North Carolina, where their crew
0: and staff put them in the garden.
1: I just find that entirely hilarious to me to think about the journey of a
0: tree where it started and where it ends up. So that we're all in the same place. Explain tree propagation to us. Propagation is kind of the umbrella word
1: for taking a plant and reproducing more plants from it. That can either be the collecting of seed that you put in the ground or that you put in a controlled environment in a greenhouse and let them sprout. Propagation can also mean taking cuttings, which you also stick with a rooting hormone and stick into a controlled environment, maybe heated beds and controlled greenhouse space for them to take root. Those seedlings or those cuttings get shifted up to larger containers. Propagation is the umbrella word for making more plants. And then there's a number of different ways to do that. The budding and grafting, is a very specialized type of propagation, wherein there may be a rootstock, meaning there's a particular plant way out of my field here. But let's say with those ornamental crab apples. There is a basic crabapple rootstock that may be advantageous to take on that rootstock and graft particular variety of crabapple, not really grow it on its own rootstock. It'll actually do better and perform better if it's grown on a more select rootstock. A lot of times you'll see, particularly fruit trees and some of the ornamental crabs and cherries and everything, you'll see a graft at the bottom if you buy one at the store or at the nursery, there'll be a little sharp little dog leg at the bottom where it was grafted at one time on a different root stock. Man, budding can be all kinds of crazy things. If you go to some of these specialty nurseries, particularly mail-order nurseries that offer these really odd fruit trees that might have peach and nectarine and everything all on the same tree, well, they budded all these different varieties onto one stem
0: to grow this odd tree. What's the most unique plant or weirdest plant that you've grown in your nursery?
1: You know, I don't know that there's anything particularly weird and unique may mean things that aren't necessarily broadly grown. You can find an oak or a maple or a crepe myrtle or a magnolia just about anywhere. Any nursery that's growing landscape ornamental material is going to have the basic bread and butter plants. We do try to do some things that are a little bit unusual, a little bit hard to find. One of the primary ones that comes to my mind that we grow is a Chinese evergreen dogwood. It's a selection that's been named Bernice. Gary Agin used to be the grower at Lone Oak Tree Farm years ago. They were growing seedling Chinese evergreen dogwoods. He selected one in particular that had good form, a good presence. It had good flower. He started propagating it vegetatively, taking cuttings and propagating it. And he named it Bernice after his grandmother. When Gary left Lonook years ago, it took me a long time to track him down. I wrote him a letter and got his permission to propagate Bernice. got in an agreement with Byron Lakeview Nursery over in Byron, Georgia. Jonathan and Bambi James, they actually had some parent plants. They've been taking cuttings from me for years and getting those rooted, and I get them as one-gallon plants, which is something I normally don't do. We'll take those ones and put them in sevens, stake them and prune them and train them, and then shift them to 15s a year later. And then a year later after that, then we have that plant available. Chinese evergreen dogwood. There is another cultivar out there called Empress of China. It's more well-known in the trade. Don't know that there's any real distinct difference between the two trees. I don't know if anybody else is growing that one, the Bernice. It's a favorite with a lot of my customers, and so we'll continue to grow that one for a long time.
0: That is a fantastic tree. I probably bought some of the fantastic last one ones three. sold at Long Oak before they shut the doors. I've got one right now blooming in my yard. This, this is a fantastic. <coughs> it's a great thing about it is it probably Hello, by I'm your host, now. Red and of course, McManus. it
1: depends on the region where you are. For Hello, us, I'm your we're host, Further south McManus. than you, they're a little bit on the this very is tail end of the 89. bloom cycle. They do Your traditional Florida dogwood Chapel, is long over and done podcast. with, and even some of the I'm other the Chinese dogwood or, or Cusa dogwood varieties that bloom in May are already played out. But this one, the evergreen one, is really really late. It's a heavy. Producer of flowers, tree. it's just it's a really nice tree, particularly
0: because the evergreen nature of the leaves. Podcast. I remember when I was talking to him, they said, uh, yeah, an evergreen dogwood." <laughs> <presentation> yeah, <laughs> episode fifteen. A lot of
1: people come by the farm. tell me, you know, you've got a You're whole block sharing. of trees over there that look like they really need Thank some you, water. For well, sharing because the leaves droop straight drawing. down and they cut. But that's their natural you, habit. For of course, they'll turn success, a little bit growing. bronze or maroon in the winter time, and they hang straight down. It always looks like it needs Thank a little you, Paul. bit of water, For unless sure. you're used to looking at it. I don't pay any attention us. anymore. It is Thank unique. Thank you, Paul, it does for sharing your successful description growing or your journey. Category of unique trees. Thank you. Uh, you Paul. How many trees do you have on you're your? You're awesome. Nursery? Let me answer that this way, because I know this number. If we had Thank every you, Paul, spot for full, and, and we're only 23 acres, so as far today. as tree farms Thank go, we pretty for small. Based on our production journey. beds and Thank how they're you, Paul, laid out, if we had every spot year. available with a plant on it, we would have 16,032 trees. I know that number. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your successful sales journey and mm-hmm. potting and getting things moved to the production beds at any given time, there's easily anywhere between one to 3,000 empty spaces out there most of the year, really. There are some times when we are really, really full and probably got less than four or 500 empty spaces. To answer your question, we'll stay somewhere this has been episode around 89 that 14 to 15 thousand trees next out there. Tree we don't ever have that Chapel many available for Garden sale if we're podcast, really smart about this, which and we're not always that smart, really smart about, Thank particularly you, Paul. some You're of the awesome. more heavily used crops. We'll have a brand new crop on the ground that just got potted up and moved to the field a few weeks ago. Somewhere out there, we'll have a crop that's somewhere in the neighborhood of eight months old, 10 months old, not quite ready for sale, but getting close. And then we'll also have a crop out there that is getting low in numbers that we've been selling out of for four to five months. Try to have a rotation, in other words. For example, if I've got October glory maples out there, I've got some really small ones in 15 gallons. I've got some medium-sized ones in 15 gallons. And I've got what I call a block of trees or a group of trees that are finished that we're actually pulling orders from. And in a perfect world, pull the last one out of that block and it's all done. That next block is really close, if not already finished and ready to start pulling material out of the ship. What that means is that at any given year, we've got somewhere around 40% of the inventory that's ready and available for sale, 60% that's at some stage of production. I don't know if this number matches up to my percentages, but we're moving out of there, actually loading on trucks and shipping somewhere in the neighborhood of 7,000, maybe 8,000 trees a year.
0: Sounds oh, like cool. a
1: lot, but like I said, we're small. <laughs>
0: yeah yeah tell you what I went to your website at diversifiedtrees.com dot com and I saw a couple of videos you had using yeah. a drone that was impressive. See that drone fly through the nursery and and see all what's involved in in producing these trees and I'd recommend folks go there and and look at that. I was just very impressed and I've you know been around for a long time and seen a lot of nurseries <laughs> <laughs> never flown through any nurseries, but <laughs> maybe that's what it was. <laughs>
1: That was the son of a friend of ours who's a student over at Auburn University and does some drone videos on on the side. We originally did video for the trade show season last year since we weren't having trade shows. We were having virtual trade shows. And once all of that was over, I thought, you know, why not? I'm just going to put this up on our website. If I'm buying a 60-gallon plant, what does that mean? We do four sizes. We do a 15-gallon, a 30-gallon, a 65-gallon, and a 100-gallon. So the landscape contractor that buys from us, what that 65 gallon means to him is that he gets pretty good sized plant to start with, with a much bigger root system. For us, in 65-gallon, we are only doing evergreen material. We're doing conifers and magnolias in those 65s. You're looking at getting a green giant arborvata that's 10 to 12 foot, Brackens Brown Beauty magnolia that's 10 to 12 foot. That's kind of our target height in a 65-gallon. Take a magnolia, for instance. Let's just say Bracken's Brown Beauty Magnolia, which is a traditional southern magnolia grandiflora, dark brown back leaf, very popular in landscape trade. That 15-gallon magnolia is going to be around 5 to 6 foot. The 30-gallon magnolia is going to be 7 to 8 foot. The 65-gallon is going to be 9 to 10 foot, and the 100-gallon magnolia is going to be 12 to 14 foot. To each incremental increase in size of a container, you get that increase in breadth and height of a plant. From a handling standpoint, you go from a 15-gallon that weighs about 45 or 50 pounds to a 100-gallon that weighs about six or 700 pounds which sounds like a lot, 12 to 14 foot magnolia grown in the field, that's field dug and put in ball and burlap, probably going to weigh 1,800 to 2,200 pounds. So there's a big difference in weight, big difference to the contractor who's got equipment or got small spaces. A lot of times these guys will say, I'd rather have a B&B, but I need a container for this one because we got to go through a small gate. We can't get equipment in there. We got to roll it into the backyard and get it up a hill and we need something we can hand." It's one advantage of container sizes that we do.
0: It seems like building lots, especially residential lots, are getting smaller. How does that determine type plants or trees that you grow?
1: Part of it is, you know, there are a certain number of things you got to provide because they're used in such quantities almost on every landscape. And that's the shade trees and the either the coniferous evergreens or the broadleaf evergreens. Then you get down to some of your specialty crops and you try to think what's going to drive demand. And the smaller urban landscapes are certainly one of those markets out there that you know your customers are dealing with. I've got a lot of residential customers in the Atlanta metro area. They're not dealing with 100-acre condominium development. They're dealing with the old Atlanta neighborhood that are all postage stamp-sized lots and somebody who renovates a house and wants to renovate Mm -hmm. their garden, their backyard, and the pass-through gates, the alleyways are tight, the overhead space is tight, all that kind of stuff. There are a few trees. We don't have a lot that we offer that fits that niche, but it did kind of drive our decision to add them to the list because we haven't always been growing these for instance, there's a European hornbeam called Franz Fontaine. It's very fast It's upright, tight, and narrow. At mature size, it doesn't take up a huge headspace, and that tree fits that urban street tree, or that urban green space, or that urban front yard. There's a Chinese fringe that we grow, Chionanthus retusus, Tokyo Tower tour size is only 12 to 14 foot tall and five to six foot broad. What I would refer to as a patio tree. Fits in a small space, great spring color, okay fall color, nothing bragging about. The summer foliage color is dark, glossy green. It's just a real nice tree. There are a few things that we try to add Mm -hmm. to our mix based on the landscape design needs that are out there.
0: Do you see any other trends coming along in the landscaping and gardening industry? There are a lot of novelty trends when it comes to plants. People stay real close to
1: Better Homes and Gardens or Southern Living magazines, which a lot of the residential homeowners do. And a lot of that drives their decisions toward what plants they ask their landscapers or their landscape architect about. The guys who are bringing new plants to the market that are doing pretty exotic things in terms of hybridizing and tissue culturing and developing plants with certain flower colors, certain characteristics, certain summer traits or winter traits, whatever they're shooting for, there's been a big trend toward that in the last 20, 25 years for sure. For a long time, Craig, you know this, landscapes, commercial landscapes particularly, were dwarf yopon, red maple, oak tree, and laripe. That was kind of your standard commercial landscape. Admittedly, they were kind of boring. So I think new plant introductions are good, but I'm certainly not trying to grow all of them. That's for sure.
0: What about the native plant movement or just native plants in general? Is that something that you're thinking about more now as a grower? We have done certain palette of native plants. It's been part of our production since day one.
1: Part of that is the environment at Callaway Gardens that I kind of came through for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Brought a lot of those plants with us into nursery production when partner and I left the gardens and started this operation. Because there's just a lot of great plant material, and and native plants have been kind of trendy, you know, for a while. And there's been some encouragement to use native plants because they adapt better, they survive better, they thrive better if you use native plants. And to a degree, that's very true. So we've done a number of native trees in our production. We've also eliminated some, too, because it can be difficult to grow. Take, for example, sirewood. It's a great tree. It's kind of that medium-sized woodland tree. They're in bloom right now. If you're paying attention out there driving around, roadside edges or parks or wherever, they're in bloom right now. They got great fall color. There's all kinds of reasons to have them in your landscape. If you like attracting honeybees, native trees are great for pollination and all that kind of thing. There is a lot of really good reasons to have native trees in your landscape. But from the grower standpoint, I could just about ask you to stick an ice pick in my eyeball than to ask me to try to grow another crop of (laughs) woods. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I mean, golly, we just, they're so root sensitive and the root environment has to be done and managed so differently that it makes it really, really hard to grow a nice crop of sourwood trees. And then my customers always have problems with transplant success. It seems like nature does a whole lot better job of spreading those through the woods on their own than we can do in the nursery and landscape trade.
0: And that might explain why we don't see, I would say, a huge numbers like we see in exotic plants, nurseries. And do you think that's what drives it? No, that's what drives it.
1: Look, there's been kind of a feudal war between nursery growers over the years. There are some growers who are native purists and some, you know, love natives and do a small smattering of them and some who gave up doing natives at all. When you start talking natives, like overcup oak, that's a native southeastern tree. And we have always grown overcup oak. It is easy to grow. My favorite of all the oaks to grow and to see it planted and to see it mature, it's just a great tree. There's a native tree that I am committed to growing from now on. Unlike the sourwood, which I've given up on, which I also think is a great tree. I applaud the guys who commit themselves to doing strictly native plant production. They can do it and they're usually small operations or they're such big operations that they can tolerate the losses. Mm-hmm. And you think about in Florida, and I won't name names. There are several big nurseries who do a lot of native trees by seed and do them by the hundreds of thousands because they do a lot of this for reforestation work, for stream mitigation work or wetland mitigation work and that sort of thing. So there's a niche for marking those trees. But they're also not concerned about growing straight trees or well-balanced trees or trees that necessarily look good for the landscape. My customers, whether it's a landscape architect or a landscape design bill firm, or whether it's just some guy who's just doing small landscape jobs with two or three helpers, they want plants that look good when they put them in the ground. They want straight trunks and central leaders. They want balanced heads. The aesthetics of landscape work is almost what drives what plants you grow, what plants you select for that install, not so much as to whether it's native or exotic or whether or not it's suitable for this climate or not. I mean, we push the envelope a lot with some of these exotics by bringing them into the southeastern landscapes of Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee. Some of them do very, very well. I love plants. I have for a long time. It's one of the reasons I love going to work every day. It's one of the reasons I like this business is that I'm one of the lucky guys, right? I have found something that I really love to do because Mm -hmm. I love plants. Now, having said that, I'm also in the nursery business, and I got to pay my bills. I've got to meet production demands. I can't be successful if I have major crop losses got to maximize those seven or 8,000 trees that I'm able to ship out per year because that's what keeps the machine running. To make choices, I got to decide how much of a native nursery do I want to be. It wasn't a hard decision, but I was disappointed that I had to drop sirewood, but I just had to. Mm -hmm. The crop losses were just too great. In this business, if you can't make money growing it and selling it, you just can't afford to be trying to grow it.
0: It's got to be economically viable or you're spinning your wheels. Yeah. If I was a hobbyist
1: and I wanted to set up a little small operation, and I'd probably just do some native trees. Because on a small scale, you can alternate your soil mixes. You can play around with shade and sunlight, and you can play around with how much water they get and or don't get, how dry, how moist you keep soils. All of that has to do with the success of being able to grow some of these native species. And Whether that's something, a sandy river bottom plant or an upland hillside plant, they just all require such different environment. When you're in nursery production and you're trying to make a living at it, it's labor intensive, but it's just so much less headache. Where if you got a set of plants out there where the, all the watering requirements are very, very similar, all the nutrient requirements are very, very similar, all the staking and pruning requirements are very, very similar. Because I just don't have the labor nor the expertise among that labor to say, treat these three production beds one way. We're going to treat these three a totally different way, and we're going to treat these three production beds even a totally different way from the other. That gets hard to do.
0: What are some of the biggest challenges you face as a grower? Economically, it's always labor for us, right? We always seem to be
1: shorthanded. But from a plant side of things, I think it's being able to do the right things at the right time in the right order is always a challenge because there are so many things that come up that keep you from achieving those goals. For example, I know that if I don't get all of my maples pruned in the springtime before June gets here, if I wait till late June and end of July to try to prune a maple, I'm going to get almost zero response out of it. I'm not going to get another stem break. I'm not going to get another flush because as it heats up, their growth rate slows way down. Well, if I'm busy in April and May, and we're still potting or we're pulling orders, and I got two guys a week that don't show up for work, I'm also trying to do pre-emerge and weed control in the nursery, and those trees don't get pruned at the right time, then that's frustrating. So just staying on a on a production schedule is a big challenge. Staying on top of your weed management is a big challenge in a production nursery. Think just making sure that your water is right. Tell the guys all the time. The most important thing we do here is water, because if we don't do that right, nothing else we do matters. Yeah, it requires seven days a week for somebody to be there and put their eyes on what's going on, particularly in the summer months. It's not as critical in the winter months, in the dormant season, but particularly kind of April through. October. You got to be out there. Even if we're not open for business, even if we don't have anybody working, either me or Corey, my partner, we make sure we go out there. You stick your head in the pump house, you ride, make sure the beds are looking like the water has run and everything's working right. And you take a big sigh and you go back home. (laughs) (laughs) It's drip irrigation, right? Technically, they are spray stakes. It's not really drip emitters. It is a micro-spray system, which is way more efficient than overhead. If we had to do overhead, I'd hate to think about the amount of water it would require. Even with a micro-spray system, our pump station is metered. So we are pumping in the neighborhood of 5 to 6 million gallons a year to water the farm. Mm -hmm. There's been a push, oh, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of concern, of course, in the state of Georgia about water quality and water quantity and whether or not agriculture, which is what we're a part of, we're perceived by the general public, I think, as a big water waster. But I'm telling you, all the nursery guys I know are the most water conscious people that I know of. They really pay attention. We try to do it the most efficient way. Any runoff we collect goes back to our water source, filter everything and we water as efficiently as we can. Even during the heat of the summer, we're only running two six minute cycles a day. You know, at the farm, that seems like a very short period. It is a short period, but it's adequate to keep them hydrated. It's not so much that there's a lot of runoff and waste, and it's not so little that they suffer. We didn't always do just two cycles. There was a time when we first started, and look, I was new to production nursery operation. I'd been in horticulture a while, but I'd never really done production until we started Diversified Trees. We were running four eight minute cycles a day years ago when we first started. We asked a lot of other growers, how much water are you running? What are you doing? How do you manage yours? You know, what kind of system do you have? And which is a great thing about the nursery grower industry is that everybody is extremely helpful and very free about sharing information. And there's very few proprietary secrets. We have all made mistakes and we've all learned from them. We were having some root rot issues in some of our trees. I had one of the guys from UGA come out, spend a day with us. He's the nursery crop specialist and he basically said, you're running too much water, creating an environment that are giving you all these problems. So start cutting back on your water. Get ready. When you cut back on your water, the trees are going to wilt because they're used to having all this water. They're going to start screaming at you like the kid in the grocery cart at the checkout line who wants lollipops and suckers. Mm -hmm. But don't give in to it. They'll wilt. They'll look bad for a few weeks. Then they'll get used to the new regime. We cut back the time and we cut back from four cycles to three cycles. Now, at this point, I've stayed with the six-minute time, reduced it to two cycles, and they really do just fine.
0: I think that's what we tend to do in our own home landscape. We run our irrigation systems at home way too much, and we overmanage our landscapes, I think.
1: We see that a lot on the tree service side of our business because guys are in residential yards all the time. They spend the money on a nice landscape, and they get an irrigation system put in. It's almost like they think, well, I've got this irrigation system. i got to run it, and i got to run it a lot. Justify my investment. You're right. We step into yards that are mushy, mm-hmm. plants that are dying because they're sitting in saturated soils, scum and moss and mold growing in the turf grass because it's <laughs> too wet. And uh, I'm sure you've seen a lot of that. Yeah, so yeah.
0: we replace more plants that have been over water than underwater. Stick that shovel on the ground and it makes a sucking sound when you pull back on it. Yeah. 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 You know, right. Exactly why that plant died.
1: Yep. What people don't realize is the symptoms on a plant, brown leaf margins, all this stuff, wilting leaves, the signs for overwatering mimic the signs for not enough water. But they don't think about too much water. They think about, I'm not watering enough. And so they just keep pouring it to it. And it just exacerbates the whole problem.
0: Soons that plant into a death spiral, what is the death spiral?
1: It's a slow fade. And it usually just starts with neglect. I'm going to talk like county agent talking to the homeowner. Okay. So this guy says that, you know, my, my tree's not looking good. Well, how long does it not look good? I don't know. Maybe two years. <laughs> And what you find out is that they know it, but they intuitively don't really do anything about it. They don't really manage their landscape. Now, A lot of people have companies come in, lawn maintenance companies, and they mow the grass and do some pruning. And maybe they get some fertilization, maybe not. Most of them probably don't. But a lot of people that don't have that, people enjoy doing their own gardening. I bought this great tree and they go out and they plant it and they know enough to water it when they plant it. If they plant it in the summer, they will water it some over the first summer and they get it to live. But then you know, a few years later, it starts looking really bad. It starts thinning out. They've never fertilized it. They've never supplemented the water during dry periods. They've never really thought about pest management and whether or not the oak leaf caterpillars have denuded the tree every fall for the last three years in a row. It's a sum total of a lot of little things.
0: It have been going back the
1: way it was planted. We do offer a tree planting service on the tree service side of our business because what will happen a lot of times, we'll go into a, a residential landscape, we'll remove a tree for whatever reason, it lightning struck or it's old and it's fallen apart and they want a tree back in its place. We'll do that, but we're not really full-blown landscape contractors. I've always been a big proponent of good soil preparation in the landscape because that's where 90% or maybe 98% of the problems originate with plants that start dying or plants that don't perform well. For example, if I was going to plant a grouping, let's just say that I really liked limelight hydrangea and I had a nice sunny slope that I was going to plant these hydrangeas on. It was going to take up a space that was 20 foot by 12 foot. What your average guy is going to do is go out there, dig nine holes and plant nine plants. Straw, he's going to mulch them. He's going to either bark or pine straw, he's going to water them. And that's the only digging he's going to do. I'm way more prone to actually turn the ground in that whole 200-square-foot area. Of course, if I've got the equipment, I'll maybe use a mini-excavator. If I don't have that, I at least got a tiller that I can get down 8, 10, 12, 14 inches with and amend the entire area and then lay my plants out and dig those holes and plant them particularly in the clay soils of our Piedmont area of Georgia when you dig a hole pounding through hard clay so much can happen one is it can hold water if it's not deep enough you don't want to plant too deep but sometimes if you got a hard pan you have to dig through it plus your roots like to go out contrary to popular belief roots don't go down roots go out if I'm planting a root ball that's 14 inches across, I'm going to dig a hole that's at least three times that wide. I'm not going to dig it any deeper than the, the root ball is tall, but I'm going to dig it wide. I'm not going to dig my hole is the same size as the pot and I shove the root ball down in it. I want those roots to have some good loose soil to grow out into. That spiral of death a lot of times starts right there without good soil prep. You wouldn't build a house without preparing the foundation, right? And you shouldn't really plant the landscape without preparing the most fundamental piece of that, and that is thorough, really good soil prep. Just make sure you got good organic matter. Make sure you got good soils to work with. Make sure you do soil tests, know where your pH is so that you can address deficiencies and all that sort of stuff. You can pay somebody a lot of money, put in a really nice landscape. If the soil is not right, you're going to be really, really disappointed. You might not be disappointed that first year, but you're going to be disappointed down the road.
0: What do you wish people would do differently when they design or build or grow a garden or landscape? Not overplanting
1: and not over designing. I see so many landscapes, residential and commercial, that are just so way overplanted. I know in my mind that in five to 10 years, half or more of those plants in that landscape are going to have to come out or should come out because it's going to be so crowded. I'm not a professional designer and I don't mean to be bad mouthing designers because I know that they're also trying to meet a customer expectation we could educate the end consumer about being patient with gardens and allowing landscapes and gardens to mature and designing and installing not for what it looks like today, but for what it will look like in 10, 15, and 20 years. I'm hurting my business because I'm going to sell fewer plants if we start (laughs) doing that. (laughs) The other thing, windrows of Leyland cypress planted six feet apart. You and I both know not only bad plant choice, whether it's Cryptomeria or Green Giants or Magnolias, and you plant something six feet apart that's going to be 40 foot tall and 18 foot broad at maturity. Yeah, it looks cute today, and it accomplishes what you want right now. You'd be so much better off to give it proper
0: spacing, to try to see in your mind what it's going to look like down the road. That would be my wish. I'm a guilty party on that Leland Cypress thing. Planned them back before we knew that we needed to be spacing them. That's my summer project. I've got probably 100 of them i got to take down on my property. I'm not looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't get replacements
1: from me because we quit growing them about five, six years ago.
0: (laughs) I am not replacing with that. We've excommunicated Leland Cypress from our itinerary. Everybody wants to screen their
1: neighbor off. Mm -hmm. Let's face it, plant material gets used a lot for the same purpose that fence does. Another trend, I guess, the the green wall I wish would go away. And I wish people would do more of a aesthetically pleasing kind of buffer. Mix it up some, create some depth. But with small urban landscapes, I get sometimes eight feet of width is all you've got to work with along your property line. So you got to do something. So I get it. It's not a perfect world for those things.
0: You mentioned Callaway Gardens earlier. Tell us about Callaway Gardens.
1: It's hard to believe it's been 20 years since I worked there. I still drive by it every day. Still a very special place for me. It was probably the best horticulture experience that I ever got. I learned. First little greenhouse landscape mom and pop place I worked for back in the 80s. Did the big Atlanta landscape maintenance design build company back in the late 80s and early 90s. Then came to Callaway Gardens in ninety four. I was there eight years. Callaway in the strictest sense, it's not necessarily a botanical garden like the Morton Arboreum or like the Atlanta Botanical Gardens would be. It does have collections, but it's more of a resort gardens than it is a true botanical garden. We had an educational component and had educational staff at that time back in the 90s. We did a lot of interpretive work. Every piece of the landscape, I won't say every plant, but in the more heavily trafficked sections of the garden, we had interpretive labels, botanical names, place of origin, that sort of thing. And then certainly in the really highly intense landscapes like the Sibley Conservatories and the outdoor perennial gardens, yeah, every plant was labeled. People could come and not only enjoy the look, the feel, of being in a space like that and being in a garden like that, the sounds, the colors, the waterfalls, the koi ponds. It's still a great place. You know, miles of bike trails. There's lakes with fishing. There's recreational opportunities with tennis and golf and racquetball. There's restaurants. There's the lodge and spa, hotels, places to stay. There's the Robin Lake Beach, which is, I think, may still be the largest man-made beach, at least in the southeast. I think it's almost a mile long. That's a 53-acre lake now, with a beach most of the way around. It's pretty substantial. The Masters Water Ski Tournament is there every year over Memorial Day weekend. It's really a unique kind of environment. A lot of things have changed. It's not the same place it was, but it's still a great place to go and to visit and to see a, a pretty outstanding garden spaces. As far as professional development, I don't have the academic background that a lot of guys in this business have. I I didn't go through horticulture program in college. I have been a voracious reader. Michael Durr and, and Alan Armitage forwards and backwards as much as I can. Try to memorize the glossaries in their books so I wouldn't sound silly. When I was in conversations that required it. Time when I came to Callaway Gardens, there was a vice president of horticulture, Dr. Barrick, a PhD in horticulture. He taught at University of Florida for a number of years before he came to Callaway Gardens. Just a brilliant guy, a landscape architect, I think, by training, true gardener by experience. In fact, when he left the gardens in the late nineties, he spent his last twenty years as the director of Bellingraft Gardens down in Mobile, which is another just incredible garden space. There were also two directors, a director of grounds and a director of horticulture, both who were professionally trained horticulturalists. Then a number of managers, Hank Bruno, who was the trails manager and the manager of the Azalea Gardens, masters in botany. So I'm I'm talking smart people that I got to rub shoulders with. That forced me to go after whatever other professional credentials I could get, everything from as simple as a pesticide license to the Georgia Certified Landscape Professional Certification to Certified Arborist to whatever else I could dig into. As I made it up into management at Callaway Gardens, it was just part of that environment. Probably the most formative eight years that I could have ever asked for anywhere to prepare me and bring me along for what I'm doing now. Tell us a backstage secret at Callaway. I think a lot of the guests take some of the floral displays for granted. They're not as numerous as they used to be, but whether it was just an in-ground summer floral display or whether it was a seasonal display like in the fall with the mums at the Sibley Center. Most people would be really surprised to realize how much work went on behind the scenes to make those displays come to life. I was responsible at that time for a lot of floral plantings around the gardens, and I had to design those plantings a year in advance so that I could turn into production. Everything that I needed to make those displays happen, they, of course, had to place their orders for seeds and plugs, and all that stuff had to be brought in. Then it had to be grown in the greenhouses and ready on those displays. We weren't putting flats in. We were putting in more mature perennials and annuals that already showed color because we wanted it to be instant. We didn't want to to let it grow into it. The mum displays, particularly the cascading mums that were in the Sibley Center over the waterfalls and over the railings, that took several months to grow those mums and to train them and to pinch them and to tie them to the frames and bring them out. And people think, oh, this is just wonderful. It took a lot of man hours to put some of that stuff together.
0: I would think it'd be extremely challenging just to transport the cascading mums from the greenhouse without breaking them. (laughs) Oh, it was. It was. They were set out on on a certain area of the pad. They had
1: certain frames that they were grown on, and then they had to all be handled by hand just a few at the time to move them into place. And so it took a lot of hours to do that. Tell us
0: something humorous about being in the tree business.
1: One thing that happens occasionally that I find pretty humorous is more on the tree service side of our business. There have been a number of occasions over the last 20 years where we have gone in for a client to remove a tree. Sometimes they want us to put one back in its place, and we've planted a tree from our farm. We've gone back on a number of occasions to fertilize that tree with soil injection equipment. We have pruned that tree to lift it and keep it in good shape. And 10, 12 years later, they decided to add a deck or change the house or move the swimming pool. And we have gone back in, and we have taken that tree down and planted another tree 30 feet over <laughs> from it. It's like, it's like we made our living on that tree like five, six times. <laughs> it, yeah, <laughs> It's just too funny. What is your earliest garden memory? Oh, golly, that's real easy. Hoeing corn and tomatoes in a vegetable garden with my dad. So I've always been in the dirt in that regard. Horticulturally, my earliest memories are of my mom, who was prone to keep a plastic bag and a pair of snips in her pocket, but with her at all times, and she would still cuttings off a plant. She'd see something she'd like, and she'd just park the car on the side of the road in some neighborhood. Mom, what are you doing? I've always wanted one of those. And she'd look over both shoulders and take a snip, put it in her plastic bag, and bring it home. I know for a fact that we have at the old home place, there is a burning bush in our yard, which is probably suffering because it's so hot down here. But we were up in Tennessee and she saw these burning bushes at a gas station on the side of Interstate 81. John, pull over. We pulled in there and she went in the bathroom, got a paper towel and wet it, got a cutting wrapped it in a paper towel, stuck it in a purse and brought it home. And she always rooted her stuff in a glass jars with water in the kitchen windowsill. And if it rooted fine, if it didn't, she wasn't very scientific about it. There is more stuff in the old home place yard as a result of her stealing <laughs> cuttings from all over the Southeast, getting them to root and then planting them. Talk about a woman who's patient. She didn't need instant effect. She just would put this little bitty stick in the ground and threaten me beyond no end not to run over it with a lawnmower until it got (laughs) up to size.
0: What got you into horticulture and arboriculture as a profession?
1: I was living in Cartersville, Georgia
0: at the time,
1: and I had been working for a carpet mill. It was a job that I hated for five months. I was inside, and I had no windows. I just loathed all five months of it. Saw an ad in a paper for Greenbrier Nursery looking for workers. Called him up. Mr. Ralph Fair gave me my first job in the nursery business. He encouraged me to get my pesticide license, which I did, been in it ever since. That was probably 1983 or four, I think. I just fell in love with it. First plants I ever potted were Jackson Perkin Roses Came in from Texas to our little greenhouse. I didn't know beans about what I was doing. We potted up rose bushes for retail sale. And I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Did a little bit of landscape maintenance and a little bit of landscape install around Cartersville, Georgia. I just felt like I had a knack for it. And once I started working in Atlanta, that was with AAA Lawn Industries years ago. We were doing commercial properties. I really love pruning. I don't know. It was crazy. A lot of people hate pruning, but I, I love taking something out of bounds and turning it into something back in bounds. It just kind of got in my blood. By the time I made it to Callaway Gardens, it's hard not to love it in that setting. And then my business partner, he was the managing arborist at Callaway. We started talking. Callaway was changing some. We could see some writing on the wall. Dr. Barrick had left. Parker Andes had left. The winds were blowing a little bit different direction. We weren't too sure where horticulture was headed at the gardens. And if you want to stay in botanical gardens work, which I probably could have gone to Mobile, but I was tired of moving. I had moved a good bit. We had kids and it's just not a botanical garden around every corner, right? So you have to be willing to be an itinerant preacher and, and go and go from state to state if you're going to stay in that business. We just got to talking. Well, what if we do a nursery and we do tree work, plants is what we know. It wasn't until after we started Diversified Trees really that I went and got my ISA certification because I, I still want to be a student. You got to do 30 hours of education every three years to maintain that certification. So we are continually still trying to stay on top of things. I love trees. I'm not a tree hugger in in that truest sense. You don't sit down in front of the bulldozer to save a tree. We are going to do all we can to help promote tree health care, promote the benefit of trees. I've been fortunate enough to do a number of small garden club talks, continuing ed talks at the library where they have people sign up that want to come listen to a talk about trees I enjoy promoting that because I think they do play a valuable part. It's not, it's not just a catchy phrase to say that trees bring value to the landscape. They really do in a lot of different ways.
0: What's your most valuable garden mistake? Planting something in a
1: wrong place and after moving it probably a dozen times at my own house, finally finding somewhere that it was happy. <laughs> And by that, I mean, if you plant something in the wrong place and it dies, don't go buy another one just like it and plant it back in the same place. Learn from that mistake. If you see that it's not doing well, catch it before it dies. Dig it up and move it. Plants are pretty resilient. Just learning to move stuff around and not being discouraged because something dies, put something else in that place. I think there's value in killing a plant. Because if you think about what you did and what the plant was and where it was, the environment it was in, you'll do better next time.
0: In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I would harken back to the Callaway days and all that staff there. It's
1: impossible to pick one particular person. That environment was just an incredible influence for me. Other more recent years, meaning the last 20 years, I think the people in this industry, again, I'm not going to single out any individual, but the other growers have been a huge encouragement when we decided to start Diversified Trees, I knew a lot of these growers from my days at Callaway because I, I bought a lot of plants. I'd been to a lot of these nurseries and tag trees that we brought into the gardens and used there. As we were preparing to leave the garden and start Diversified Trees, I told some of those guys about those plans. You would think you might come across somebody who would say, oh, we don't need another grower. You're going to take away part of my business. What do you think you're doing? But it didn't go that way. I was really encouraged. Last six months at Callaway Gardens, I spent every weekend, every free time that I could get away and got on the road and went to a lot of these other growers. They shared a lot of invaluable information, and I saw a lot of things that I wanted to imitate. I saw a lot of things I didn't want to imitate, too. All that was good. Those guys have been a huge influence on our success by their willingness to share information and help us do a good job.
0: I would like for you to complete this statement, in my garden I have. A
1: mess. (laughs) It's like the plumber's kitchen sink always leaks, right? My own garden, it's got some neat things in it. I've got some plants that I'm pretty proud of. Nothing terribly exotic. I do look forward to kind of fixing a lot of it one day when I retire, and then maybe you can spend a lot more time doing some of the things I really like to do with plants and seeing it grow and change. I have a Muskogee crepe myrtle, and I know everybody's just going, "Woohoo! hoo oh boy, crepe myrtle. I bought it as a three-gallon, and I planted it, and I've got a front porch and a side porch, our kitchen porch, we call it, and they kind of form a corner Everybody always asks me, why didn't you just tie the two porches together? And I don't know the answer to that, but I did. So I've got this space in that corner where I planted a Muskogee Creek myrtle. I promise you, it's no more than three feet from the foundation in both directions, 90 degrees from each other, from both foundations of those porches. And you think that is in, totally insane. But I had a vision of what I wanted, and I wanted that crepe myrtle to get up and over the top of the house and provide a canopy for those porches in that corner. I've been in this house almost 23 years now. It took me probably 18 of those 23 years to train it into three large trunks, and they are massive trunks. Each one of those trunks is probably 10, 12 inches in diameter. And to get it to go between the roof spaces and arch out, that Muscogee Creek myrtle is every bit of 35 feet tall. It arches out over those porches on that corner of the house. I'm not worried about the foundation tree planted. Mm -hmm. If it was an oak, I would, but not a crepe myrtle. One of my plants that I'm pretty proud of, it's kind of a focal point for me. Still flowers real good. And most everybody that comes, not that I have a lot of visitors, they go, wow, is that a crepe myrtle? I don't think I've ever seen one that big. And there's certainly crepe myrtles that big all over the place that they just don't look for. Back to the old adage about how people prune their crepe myrtles and they lop them off at shoulder high every year, that kind of thing. I knew that with good pruning and over time, what it could look like and what it could become. And it's finally there.
0: You let it to its potential there, it sounds like. Yeah. Sounds like you got some of your mom's patience, too.
1: Yeah, probably so, because there's a lot of things. Like I underplanted that crepe myrtle in that corner with cast iron plant. And, of course, in the early years, it got sun scorched. I didn't plant, but maybe, I don't know, 20 little quart gallons of apodistra, ap- right? Cast iron plant in there. Of course, now it's got enough shade and it's been there long enough that it is thick as hair on a dog's back. And it's just got this nice, lush green kind of upward and dipping broadleaf. That myrtle looks like it's floating out of that cast iron plant in that corner of the house. It's my favorite corner. I may rip everything else around (laughs) out, totally out and redo it (laughs) one day, but I'm not changing that corner
0: set it up on a stage. You had the stage of the Aspadustra iron cast iron plant and then the crepe myrtle coming out, the star of the show.
1: Well, I'll tell you what really made me want to do that. There are a number of plantings at Hillsendale's estate in LaGrange. That's the old Callaway home place. And it's a public garden with a visitor center and Obviously, Miss Virginia Hand Callaway was an avid gardener, so the Callaway family was always gardens on both sides, You know, the LaGrange crowd and the group down here that started Callaway Gardens. She made excessive use of cast iron plant and used it around the base of a lot of the large mature trees. Just thought it was absolutely fascinating. It just appealed to me personally. Somebody else may look at it and go, they don't care for it, but I really liked it and I tried to emulate that here.
0: Tell us about Diversified Trees and how people may
1: connect with you. We're not just a grower. We also have the commercial residential tree service side of the business. The tree service side of the business is very connected to the general public. The nursery side of the business, the growing operation, is wholesale only to the trade. It's always been a little bit of a dilemma for us when it comes to marketing and exposure, because on the one side we're we advertise in trade journals and in trade formats. On the other side, we're in the yellow pages. We're on the internet. We're trying to get ourselves out there to the general public in our local area. We. We've been doing this for 20 years now. This is our 20th year. We are a grower of container trees, no field-grown material. It's all larger container trees, 15-gallon up to 100-gallon. The tree service side of our business, we've got some long-term clients in in terms of some of the local colleges and universities and golf courses and commercial property. And we've got a lot of residential clients, some who do repeat. Most of them are, are one or two times over the course of a number of years. We're fairly small, too. If we're at full steam, we only have about 10 employees, five on the nursery side and five on the tree service side. And all these years, we haven't really expanded our numbers that way. It doesn't mean we haven't expanded the business. We have been able to you know, do that over time. It's a little bit more than mom and pop. I have a business partner and we're 50 50 owners in the business. It's very comfortable for both of us. It's been a real good adventure for us over the last 20 years. We do have a Facebook page, Diversified Trees. Everything we have, even our website, diversifiedtrees.com. The main contact phone number is real simple. It's a local number 706 is the area code, 6630300.
0: This has been episode 89. Your Garden's Next Tree with Paul Chappell on the Garden Question Podcast, a remix and encore presentation of episode 15. Thank you, Paul. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time.